0: thank the Crescent Hotel. We love to partner with them. We love being in this beautiful space. And then I also want to thank our, the council's institutional members, and that is AT&T, uh, Dallas Baptist University, Dallas College, Hardwood International, Haynes & Boone, Lockheed Martin, NEC Corporation of America, PNC Bank, and Sidley Austin. So thank you to them. And speaking of members, I think most of us are members here, but if you're not a member, Please do become a member. It means a lot to us. It makes a difference, each one of you. And you can look at our website at dfwworld.org to check out all of our membership options. We need you. Uh, I want to thank Ed Kotman and Katherine Kotman. You're the reason we're here tonight, and we are going to honor and celebrate Gail Kotman. Uh, this endowed lecture series. We are so grateful for your support and friendship and and engagement with our council. Truly, thank you, Ed. Thank you very much. And now I'd like to introduce council president emeritus Jim Fock. And please join me in welcoming him to the stage. He's gonna talk a little bit more about Gail. Thank you.
1: So I have to ask you Liz, do you have the $50 uh, fine that I used to have if the phone goes off? (laughs) And you know, it was so embarrassing because once mine went off. (laughs) Some of you were probably in the room when that happened. All right, I'm going off script. Where is Shaib? Where is Shaib Salah? Stand up young man. Happy birthday. (laughs) Can you imagine a better way? to celebrate your birthday than coming here. The only thing better than that is when Jeff Engel and his wife, Kate, celebrated their birthday at the Malin Award dinner. So that was pretty wild. So ladies and gentlemen, it is great to see so many friends here. And Liz, thank you for inviting me to participate. This is, I guess, the fifth or sixth Gail Kotman lecture that I've been able to attend and and have a role. And you know, There's so many reasons, and don't tell anybody in Santa Fe that I said this. There are so many reasons why this World Affairs Council is, I was about to say one of the best, but that's not accurate, why it is the best World Affairs Council in the United States. And one of the reasons for that, I know Jennifer is here, our head of education. Um, The education program is so strong. In fact, I was talking to people in Albuquerque where there's a World Affairs Council and they uh, followed up on a recommendation that I said they should talk to Jen. And they said, she just knows everything. We're just gonna follow exactly what she says. And so that really is a secret. And one of the things that makes the education so good is the teachers. And I'm so glad that there are teachers in the room because if the teachers don't provide the encouragement, the support, and actually the time, then the students aren't going to follow it. And Gail Kotman understood that like nobody else. Uh, While most of our activities are designed for high school students, Gail thought, well, my students are as bright as any high school student. There's no reason they can't come. They can wear a tie. They can ask better questions than everybody else. And it really was true. Gail's students were active participants. They came to the programs prepared, well-dressed in their finest, and they asked thoughtful questions. Sometimes they were prepared in advance, other times they just created them right there. And they even had to, willingly I guess, write thank you notes afterwards. And that is a tradition that uh, uh, Catherine Copman still follows Ed doesn't follow it quite as well, you know, short emails, but Catherine can still write very eloquent uh, uh, thank you notes. Recently, and maybe some of you all heard some of the same podcast or speeches, uh, fellow Texan and Pulitzer Prize winner uh, Larry Wright, who has spoken here at the council many times, described how one of his teachers at a very early age saw that he had a knack for writing and his teacher made sure that he was challenged, and she encouraged that unique talent, and that was Gail. Gail was someone who was fully committed to making sure that each and every child in her class was challenged and was able to reach their full potential, even beyond their wildest dreams. So tonight we have Professor Jeff Engel, whom I'm honored to call a terrific friend, a very close friend, and a colleague, and he shares that same commitment that gale epitomized while recognized as one of the nation's most accomplished presidential historians the time and effort that jeff puts into mentoring young students and young scholars deserves even greater recognition Kamal turk said a good teacher is like a candle which consumes itself to light the way for others it is with that thought in mind that this year the Gail Kotman Lecture highlights two, excuse me, now I'm told three, of SMU's postdocs. I'm so glad that she's here, at least in spirit, uh, as they launch their careers. And may they remember the impact and influence that great teachers in their lives, like Gail, had on their lives. So let's all just have a a quick moment of reflection for Gail Kotman. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, today, the the topic, and, you know, when it was chosen several months ago, who would have known that thinking about values in foreign policy would be even as important as they are at this very time this week? Um, The topic relates to the U.S. effort to export its ethics and values overseas as part of its foreign policy, and relating how our values do and should shape our foreign policy. So I'm gonna very quickly introduce the speakers because I don't believe in long introductions and most of you all can read, I think, so you can just read the what's there. But Jeff arrived on the hilltop in 2012. He was the first, well, I guess first equals founding. He was the founding director for the Center for Presidential History. In addition, he's also a full professor in the Clements Department of History. He's the author and editor of Over a dozen books, with two or three getting ready to be coming out in the next month, years, they'll come out soon. And one book, and I always mention this book when I introduce Jeff, and Jeff knows which one it is, the book that he wrote uh, about the breakup of the Soviet Union, When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War, it is exceptional and it should be on everybody's shelf. Something that Jeff does not highlight in his resume, I don't think, but I think you can still find it if you go to the Vanity Fair website. Is that right? This is incredible. So Jeff was asked by Vanity Fair to comment on some of the great movies where presidents were highlighted. And it is so well done. And I said, Jeff, how in the blank did you know all that stuff and prepare for it? I mean, it must've taken you weeks. And he says, they just showed the film and then I had to comment on it. So you can, can you go to Vanity Fair and find that? Yeah. Really go do it. It's phenomenal. Uh, Jeff earned his PhD at the University of Wisconsin. He's very proud of that. And his own postdoc was at Yale University. Now to our two postdocs. Augusta Delomo received her PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin in 2022. She's a specialist in US foreign policy and race and international relations from the Cold War to the present. Committed to bridging the gap between academia, policymakers, and the general public. She works in as an associate policy researcher at the Bridging Divides Initiative at Princeton University, and she's produced two podcasts Right Rising and 15 Minute History. She's joined tonight by John- Jonathan Ng, who joined the Center for Presidential History in August of 2022, and his research centers on the influence of military contractors on foreign policy and the legacy of U.S. intervention since the Vietnam War. He received his Ph.D. in U.S. history from Northwestern and previously was the J.T. Walker Postdoctoral Fellow in U.S. and Global History at the University of Tulsa. And then lastly, our postdoc, who has really worked hard the last few days, is Ashley Hand. Um, Ashley, uh, Ashland joined SMU Center for Presidential History uh, earlier, uh, last year. Her current project is Prioritizing Faith, International Religious Freedom, and U.S. Policy Choices. So, let's welcome Professor Jeffrey Engel.
2: While everyone's getting settled, um, thank you for that wonderful introduction. You know, it's funny, I I had not thought about the Vanity Fair thing for quite a while. Uh, There's actually a lesson to be learned in viewing the Vanity Fair video. I encourage you to do so, because more clicks are better. But more importantly than that, um, the lesson is do your research ahead of time. Because they gave me a whole bunch of films on presidential history and I was supposed to comment on them, no problem. So I gave them my honest opinion about these films. You ever see the film Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck? Okay, I distinctly remember seeing this movie in the theater, turning to my wife halfway through and saying, is this actually the worst movie we've ever seen? And she agreed, that it was certainly within the conversation. Anyway, uh, the, the production company that made that movie is the same one that owns Vanity Fair. So you'll notice that my comments are very slim <laughs> on that. And I didn't find that out till later. Why didn't they put all my comments? Anyway, so uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Ed, for giving us this, this wonderful opportunity. It's been a pleasure to, to have your friendship for, and acquaintance for so many years. And, and uh, it's an honor to be able to honor Gail uh, at this event. And thank you also to the World Affairs Council for giving us this opportunity. Before we jump into the discussion, uh, and the focus tonight is really on our postdocs, I do want to take the opportunity to give something to my friend Jim Falk. Because, you know, how many times has he handed me a tie? Uh, <laughs> a lot. So I was in France this last year. Our center does historical tours, as many of you may know. In fact, I encourage you to look them up if you're interested. We actually have some veterans of our tours in the room here. Uh, This last tour was on to World War I sites. Uh, I actually don't encourage going to World War I sites, I've decided. The trip was a real bummer Uh, You know, because we did World War II. We did the end of the Cold War. We did Pearl Harbor. We did Normandy. And in each of those cases, you can kind of tell a positive narrative you know, good does triumph over evil in the end. Yes, it's a war, and yes, it's terrible. But, you know, the good guys are going to win. In World War I, essentially every day, we woke up, went to a battlefield. I said, 600,000 people died here. I can't tell you why, and we'll do it again tomorrow. So kind of a bummer, which meant we looked for fun things to kind of brighten up today. And I found one. And I want to give it to you, sir, something that I found and said, as soon as I saw this, I was like, I know exactly who needs this gift.
3: It's That's sort of scary.
2: You should. It's in the bottom. You'll. You should. Yeah. You'll love it. So, yeah, enjoy. Thank
1: you.
2: <laughs> so, as you may know, Jim is an avid biker, and that is a World War One poppy. Uh, pro peace, not pro war. Pro peace jersey. So, uh, in any event, I want to turn now to our. Postdocs, the reason that we're here, and let me just say a few brief words about what a postdoc is because I'm not sure everybody necessarily understands the, the term or where that fits into a person's education. So it's actually very, very prevalent, almost required in many of the hard sciences for someone after finishing their PhD to spend another couple of years usually working in someone else's lab, just kind of getting better. And getting more edum- edumacated, as I like to say, mm-hmm. and uh, this has become the trend in the humanities as well. Um, back when I did my postdoc in 2001, uh, in case you're wondering, my postdoc started on September 1st of 2001, so you can imagine the topics changed dramatically uh, in the next week and a half. Uh, it turned out to be the most intellectually stimulating and important time of my entire life, and that's really the whole point. We give students, and they're not students anymore because they're doctors, they have finished their PhDs in history or related topic, international relations, etc. We give them two years to get smarter and two years to get better, and in some cases two years to recover from graduate school. And more importantly, we give them two years to prepare almost invariably their first book and also to prepare for the job market. Now you may know the academic job market is terrible For history, it's even worse. There are words I could use to describe the academic job market that would be accurate, but this is a family show. And I need to impress upon you that we now have over 20 alumni of our postdoctoral program, and when I tell you the next statistic, you're supposed to be blown away. Just prepare yourself. Every single one of our alumni is employed working in history. The vast majority have teaching jobs, tenure-track jobs primarily at some of the biggest and finest universities in the country. Uh, Others are working in the private sector and making a lot more money than the rest of us. Uh, Others are working in public history, but everyone is using their history degree, which I count as a success. Which is to say, these two people on stage now have a lot of pressure because they're supposed to get jobs next. You were supposed to laugh at that too, (laughs) okay. And I have every confidence in the world that they will because they're so good and you'll understand why by the end of this conversation because these are two brilliant young scholars who are really shaping the way that American foreign relations in particular is moving as a field, as a concept, and as a a, a idea of placing America in the world for the next 21st century. So I am going to sit down and call up, would you rather, speak there, or would you rather speak no, there? I wasn't. Okay, come on. I'm gonna call up Augusta uh, to the stage. We've already heard her background. And I, I need to impress upon you just how good Augusta is, because as you probably remember, I spent 10 years teaching at Texas A&M. And I hired someone from the University of Texas and my assistant is from Texas A&M. And we looked at each other real hard and said, can we actually do this?
1: <laughs> uh,
2: but then we decided, too good, we had to overcome our own prejudices. So without further ado, to tell us about her work, uh, Dr. Augusto de Omo.
4: Thank okay, Enjoy. Thank you. Uh, The best part is, is Jeff actually hired two UT Austin PhDs. Ashlyn Hand is also a UT PhD, so we were clearly just overwhelming him with our excellence this past year. So, Uh, good evening, everyone, and before I get started, I'd like to thank the World Affairs Council for having me, and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion afterwards with all of you. I'd like to start off my remarks tonight with invoking what I suspect is a familiar scene. Thousands of far-right activists violently storm a meeting of government officials convened near the nation's capital. Members of paramilitary groups roam the building unopposed, some displaying overt white supremacist symbols. These individuals are eager to disrupt leaders' negotiations to facilitate a peaceful transfer of power in the shadow of contentious national elections. Now, I've clearly just described the January 6, 2021 attack on the US Capitol. But I have also described an eerily similar event in South Africa on June 25, 1993. On South Africa's January 6, 3,000 white supremacists stormed the World Trade Center in Johannesburg, which was the site of South Africa's first negotiations for free, multiracial elections. This invasion came on the heels of a decision by South Africa's ruling national party to engage Nelson Mandela's African National Congress in negotiations after years of relentless resistance to apartheid by the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and global protests against apartheid, the legally inscribed system of white supremacist rule in South Africa. Attempting to stop the negotiations, the paramilitary far right drove an armored truck through the glass windows of the World Trade Center, effectively holding the delegates hostage. I do recognize that there is some irony here in starting my remarks as part of a program about globalizing US cultural and ethical standards with two different attacks by far-right forces on two separate governments. But what I'd like for us to do tonight is to consider these two moments. The United States is January 6, and South Africa's June 25th, not as isolated incidents, but rather as culminating actions by a far-right that believe themselves locked out of power in an electoral process no longer designed to preference them. In South Africa's case, the attack came after almost four years of violence within the country as white supremacist groups embarked on programs of terror and violence in response to negotiations to end apartheid. But these actors did not initially resort to violence to influence the end of white rule. And instead, they spent much of the 1980s collaborating with and attempting to influence friendly Western conservative governments to support the apartheid state. And crucially, they did not work alone. They were part of a transnational movement to save white rule in South Africa. Now, some of you might balk at the idea of white supremacists operating transnationally as a social movement, or you might have up until a few years ago. But what is a social movement? They promote causes, they seek to influence policy, and they try to change norms, all of which defenders of the apartheid state did. But when we think about transnational social movements, we think of the anti war movement. We think of the anti-nuclear movement. We think of advocacy around racial justice, human rights, and climate change, things that move us towards a freer, more just world. But these actors, those that wanted to save apartheid, really sit on the dark side of international advocacy, spreading anti-democratic, white supremacist organizing around the globe. And they did so long before the internet. Because throughout the 1980s, an international challenge rose to the South African government, the scale of which it had not seen before. Throughout much of the Cold War, the South African apartheid state justified its existence by positioning itself as the Cold War partner to the United States and Africa, holding the line against so-called godless Marxist terrorists in Angola, Mozambique, and Namibia. But by the 1980s, these arguments started to ring hollow as the anti-apartheid movement in the United States and Europe pushed their governments to impose economic sanctions on South Africa until it ended white rule. It is difficult to capture just how broad of an appeal the anti-apartheid movement had. It spanned political parties, it brought together religious organizations, labor unions, students, businesses, and activists, threatening the South African government by this seemingly universal rejection across the West of the abhorrent realities of apartheid rule. Well, it was almost universal. Because throughout the 1980s, in response to this growing anti-apartheid activism, a powerful counter-movement of American and South Africans emerged, consisting of political, religious, and paramilitary actors invested in preserving apartheid South Africa. Now, this is not a movement with a clear leader, but rather a nebulous and evolving coalition of interested parties. And at first, they mostly focused on politics. In the 1980s, pro-apartheid actors in the United States and Europe focused on conservative governments helmed by people like Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Helmut Kohl, trying to prevent the passage of economic sanctions against the apartheid state. They created massive media and disinformation campaigns defending white rule with one pro-apartheid magazine reaching a circulation of over 525,000 copies, reaching top American opinion informers in Congress and the White House. But it was more than that. It required, as one pro-apartheid writer put it, forming people-to-people organizations and connections that built contact and understanding between Americans and South Africans pro groups organized tours, fact-finding missions, and conferences to promote exchange between US and South African white supremacist groups. And this exchange was not just political, but deeply personal. One 1985 man-seeking woman advertisement appeared in a white supremacist magazine and explicitly stated that he wanted his future bride to be a friend of white South Africa. These men and women made their way into Congress and the Reagan White House, meeting with conservative think tanks, lobbyists, and intellectuals, and it culminated in an attempted secret diplomatic channel between Ronald Reagan and South Africa's president outside of the oversight of the State Department and the National Security Council. But they failed. Congress passes economic sanctions on October 2nd, 1986 in both the House and the Senate by over four to one, carrying widespread Republican support to override Reagan's veto of economic sanctions. It is the only foreign policy veto outside of the War Powers Resolution that Congress overrides during the Cold War and they don't just fail in the United States, with sanctions passing across Europe, even in Great Britain and West Germany. These failures enrage the pro-apartheid movement, which accused conservatives of abandoning South Africa. To these far-right activists, the mainstream conservative is no longer trustworthy. They also changed the way they talk about saving white rule. The end of the Cold War forces an additional shift for the pro-apartheid movement as the capitalist-communist binary of the Cold War really starts to lose its appeal. As a result, pro-apartheid white South Africans increasingly deployed a rhetoric of ethnic rights and minority protection to justify forming segregated ethno-states. White supremacists here are tapping into international efforts to codify human rights in the 1990s, specifically referencing documents like the 1993 Conference on Human Rights to frame their grievance as one of minority exclusion under potential black-majority government. The pro-apartheid movement routinely invokes a fear of ethnic cleansing against South Africa's whites if they did not have a separate territory for Afrikaners and something like a Volkstaat or a people's state. And yet again, they fail. The South African government largely rejects the Volkstaat plan, instead negotiating with the African National Congress for one unified multiracial South Africa, which comes to fruition in 1994. Disillusioned, pro-apartheid actors go down a variety of paths. Some choose violence and others choose separation and segregation into increasingly extremist circles, horrified at this peaceful transfer of power out of apartheid and the assumption of the presidency by Nelson Mandela. Now what can we take away from this story? It is easy to say that the activism fails. The apartheid state does end in South Africa with far less political violence than predicted at the time. But the pro-apartheid movement's global organizing reveals that the international connections that we see amongst the contemporary far right are anything but new and cannot be tied just solely to the internet. Second, the clash over white rule shows how pro-apartheid actors tried and ultimately failed to push the mainstream right wing towards an explicitly racialized defense of white South Africa. The mainstreaming effect of far right ideas and talking points gaining ground is not a given outcome. Finally, the story of the pro-apartheid movement reveals the dark underbelly of globalizing US cultural and ethical standards. The anti-apartheid movement and its sister movements for a freer, more just world do not exist alone. Progress does not go unchallenged, with white supremacists and authoritarian organizing across the world as proof of the catalyzing power of what happens in the United States. However, as Apartheid's End also reveals, these movements' successes are not guaranteed. It is up to us to decide, and the first step to combating them is to understanding what they are and where they came from. Thank you. you thank you.
3: I would like to thank the World Affairs Council for inviting me to participate in this distinguished forum. Um, I'm a scholar of militarization, and in particular, I study U.S. involvement in the international arms trade during the Cold War. The Russo-Ukrainian war has put the arms trade back at the center of the public discourse. Since February 2022, the international press has covered U.S. military aid to Ukraine, often in minute detail, uh, teaching us about Abrams' tanks, javelin missiles, and other weapons flowing through the aid pipeline. And yet arms, to, uh, arms exports have had long, uh, been a long and important part of um, US economics and diplomacy. During the early Cold War, arms production was the bedrock of the US economy. When most of us think about mid-century American industry, we think about uh, companies like Ford and General Motors churning out sleek muscle cars with candy-colored skin. Yet, the heavily militarized aerospace industry was the country's main industrial employer for much of the 1950s, as well as all of the 60s. What's more, firms such as Ford and GM also held major defense contracts. Military spending was critical to sustaining local economies, including the Dallas-Fort Worth area. In 1962, the Pentagon awarded the General Dynamics plant in Fort Worth a contract for the F-111 fighter jet. This contract was so important that it actually saved the company from bankruptcy. As you can imagine, residents were very happy when they heard the news. Um, Newspapers reported that residents stopped to cheer in supermarket aisles. Uh, They filled local bars and spouses Uh, contacted um, their um, their, uh, significant others. Indeed, defense production was so important that Southern Methodist University live streamed classes over television for engineers at General Dynamics. The university even had a special telephone line that allowed students to ask their professors questions in real time. This was essentially Zoom in the 1960s. (laughs) But by 1969, the military-industrial complex was in crisis. The Vietnam War was polarizing society, angry legislators were squeezing defense budgets, and the Pentagon's demand for weapons was falling significantly. In response, government and corporate leaders promoted arms exports and sought foreign markets to sustain American defense contractors. Uh, Put another way, they decided to globalize the military-industrial complex in order to save it. In the process, the Middle East became the biggest arms market in the global south. Over the 1970s, the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations tried to win back the dollars that the U.S. paid for oil by selling staggering quantities of military equipment to their allies in the Middle East, in particular Saudi Arabia and Iran. This strategy was cleverly called petrodollar recycling. (laughs) As a result, the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, became the largest importer of US military equipment. Iranian demand allowed major corporations, such as Lockheed and Grumman, to avoid bankruptcy. It also made the development of cutting-edge technology possible, including the F-14 Tomcat fighter, which was at the time the most advanced fighter jet in the US arsenal. In fact, the Shah twice rescued the the plane's production after Grumman ran out of money for it and Congress refused to appropriate additional funds. While sustaining American industrial capacity, exports to Iran also fueled geopolitical instability and anti-American sentiment. The Shah of Iran had consolidated his power through a a US-backed coup in 1953. And throughout the 70s, his regime imprisoned tens of thousands of dissidents, earning it the title as one of the worst human rights violators in the world, according to Amnesty International. From the perspective of many Iranians, the United States was exploiting their country by supporting autocracy and selling it weapons that it didn't really need. Indeed, by prioritizing military expenditure, the Shah assumed heavy external debts, while engendering the very economic crisis that eventually snowballed into the Iranian revolution in 1978 to nine. As the Pahlavi dynasty imploded, the Carter administration notably focused on um, working out the um, minute details of uh, US obligations to Iran and its contractual obligations to defense firms. During the late Cold War, US leaders viewed the Global South as an important market for defense contractors while selling arms to outsource the work of the Cold War to foreign allies. From their perspective, clients such as the Shah were critical partners, in this case, protecting access to oil in the Persian Gulf. Their purchases helped sustain the military industrial complex again by globalizing it. And yet US exports often sowed unintended consequences exacerbating debt crises in the global south, fomenting uh, geopolitical instability, and at times undermining U.S. legitimacy as in the case of Iran. I would like to close by briefly signaling a few ways that the arms trade helps us make sense of U.S. foreign relations since the Cold War. In the 1980s, the Reagan administration tried to contain the Iranian revolution by arming President Saddam Hussein of Iraq. The United States provided Iraq $5 billion in government-backed credits while he waged war against the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Reagan administration also allowed American firms such as Bell Helicopter and Hughes Aircraft to sell um, aircraft, military trucks, and other equipment. Yet as with the Shah of Iran, Saddam's self-aggrandizing ambitions uh, propelled a major debt crisis. Staggering under the weight of unpayable loans, Iraq seized Kuwait in August 1990, in part to pressure creditors to restructure its um, outstanding arms debt. The invasion set the country on a collision course with the United States, which of course culminated in the 2003 Iraq War. Yet since the end of the Cold War, I should should, uh, stress that the arms trade has shaped developments across the globe, including Eastern Europe, which I uh, referenced at the outset. During the 1990s, arms makers again experienced a painful phase of industry contraction as the Cold War ended, and defense firms again faced declining demand from the Pentagon. As a result, many of them propounded expansion into Eastern Europe as a way of sustaining local communities and making sure that business continued. For instance, Vice President Bruce Jackson of Lockheed Martin became the president of the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Ultimately, NATO expansion did allow arms firms to uh, access new markets, but unintentionally, it also heightened tensions with Russia, contributing to the outbreak of the Russo-Ukrainian War in 2014. In short, recent history suggests that a solely militarized approach to complex geopolitical issues, or a military aid-focused approach, has all too often backfired. As Americans face unprecedented levels of inequality, chronic wars, and the threat of climate change, we have the opportunity to embrace a more holistic understanding of security, one that prioritizes human rights, safeguards the environment, and places a new emphasis on peaceful diplomacy. I would particularly like to stress here the uh, galloping threat of climate change. On the one hand, climate change presents probably the greatest security threat to the United States and really to every other country in the world but it's not only a threat but an opportunity. Um, Machinists, engineers, business people who are working in the military sector have all sorts of transposable skills which be well put to work producing green technologies and revitalizing this country's industrial base. So on that note, I would uh, like to close. Thank Thank you. Uh,
2: thanks to both of you. You know, uh, when you ask people around the world what do they think of Americans, oftentimes they will tell you that Americans are very, very heavily armed, uh, or that they have problems in racial tension in their politics. Don't
4: point at me. <laughs> oh, I'm just like,
2: your topic, your topic. And the third topic, which we were to have heard tonight, uh, which we expected to, is Ashton Hand from the University of Somewhere. Uh, And she works on religious freedom. And one other thing which you hear about Americans is of course we are perhaps one of the most religious peoples Mm -hmm. in the world certainly compared to our European allies. And her project starts in the Clinton years and tries to explore how the United States in the post Cold War world wanted to promote religious freedom as a part of US foreign policy. But of course you can immediately see the problem which is that some states are easier to influence than others, and some states, which of course are repressive religiously, are really big Mm -hmm. and really difficult for the United States to call out as an offender. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, just making up a hypothetical example, let's say that there was a a country named China. You knew from congressional legislation that if you referred to them as a violator of human rights and a violator of religious freedom, that was going to curtail US-China trade. You also knew there was a country named Iran that was also curtailing religious freedom. Much smaller trade between the US and Iran than between the US and China. Which one of these, if you were a policymaker, would you want to label as an offender of human rights and an oppressor of religion? You can see the obvious problem. I have not done nearly justice to her work Uh, but since she deigned not to be here with us, uh, um, I'm just kidding, we're actually extraordinarily thrilled. There was a whole group text chain experience when when, uh, she had her her little daughter. Um, You can see from looking at religious freedom, looking at racial politics and white supremacy, looking at the global arms trade, that the kind of work that we're doing at the center is really, I think, at the heart of the major issues that are driving American foreign policy and American politics uh, in the past and of course going forward. And we're gonna have a few minutes where I'd like to sort of probe a couple of questions for our uh, panelists and then open up to questions for for you guys. So let me ask sort of the, the most basic question that one can ask, but I often find to be the most revealing, which is how did you get into this topic? I'm asking either who wants to. This is an experiment. This is a social experiment. Who talks first?
4: I'll do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll say I came into graduate school very undecided about what I was going to do. And uh, my advisor, who I have a very good relationship with, the second semester of my second year in graduate school was like, enough. We got to pick something. Um, And I remember that I did what any good historian would do. is So I immediately started looking in the archive. And I was like, maybe I'll find something that will spark my interest. And I was really interested in social movements. I was really interested in their impact in US foreign policy. And the biggest social movement that I could think of that I knew very little about was the anti-apartheid movement. And I decided that I was going to start looking in the archives and see if there was anything interesting for me. Um, important context is, is I started graduate school in 2016, and Charlottesville happened in 2017 in my first semester, as, uh, or for my first year as a graduate student. And so I was thinking about that. I had friends that were at UVA who worked at UVA. And I was in the archive, and I read an article about a US company, it was a religious organization, that was actively defying uh, the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of economic sanctions against the apartheid state. And I thought, huh there's probably a lot more people than just this one group that wanted to protect the apartheid state. And who are they? And that was my entry point. And uh, that group became my first article. And it it spawned this uh, intellectual curiosity for me that matched with me trying to understand what was happening as a graduate student and my own background growing up in the South. So I think all of those things brought me there. And uh, it's always interesting when you look back and you can see the threads that you were pulling on that you didn't know at the time.
2: Exactly right, Mm -hmm. exactly right. What were your threads?
3: Well, it's almost painful to imagine it because there were so many dead ends. <laughs> um, I think this is fairly typical, but I went into graduate school uh, thinking that I was going to study one thing, and I had no intention whatsoever to study U.S. involvement in the, the arms trade. Um, what had originally galvanized my interest in history was the Iraq War in 2003, um, and then seeing, um, you know, a lot of my friends uh, and family members go off to participate in that war and to fight, and then seeing my colleagues, you know, their sons go off to fight in that war, and so that caused me to ask questions of, uh, you know, how did the United States get in this sort of quagmire? Um, and then in graduate school, I knew that I was interested in U.S. foreign relations. I was also very interested in political economy, and think this may be me engaging in some historical revisionism, but I think that one of my advisors at one point was so exacerbated or exasperated by all the dead ends that he suggested, why don't you do something with the arms trade? I don't know anyone who's doing that. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of end of the thread. I've, I've been tugging at that end ever since. Mm-hmm. So,
2: Well, and in each case, you can see in both of these places, you come upon a topic that in some way uh, captivates you in a way that you didn't necessarily anticipate. Mm-hmm and drives you. Because it's not just a research project. Mm -hmm. Your first book becomes your entire life. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what did you each find? Jonathan, you can go first in this one so we don't get any more heckling. Uh, It's a joke. Uh, Jonathan, what did you find in the archives or what did you find in your book that really surprised you about your work, about the arms trade, or about the interconnectivity between that and US foreign policy?
3: Well, one thing that I intuited was that a lot of societies where U.S. arms were being used uh, probably had different social movements or grassroots actors who were cognizant that the U.S. was sending materiel, uh, weapons, military support to uh, their governments. uh, And they were probably unhappy about it in many cases. But I did not know how informed people were. And then looking at... Um, different social movements um, in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Um, in particular, different transnational social movements. So for instance, in my book project right now, I look at a lot of uh, Latin American actors and Latino activists in the United States who have family in Central America who were very well informed about uh, U.S. policy in that region during the late 70s and the 80s. And also um, I look at the involvement of Arab American actors in particular in mm-hmm. trying to shape US military aid flows to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And what I was surprised to find is these political actors were extremely well informed. Mm-hmm. They knew the different types of weapons that were flowing. They'd often get letters from family members mm-hmm. in, say, Lebanon or um, other countries uh, talking about specific arms shipments that uh, they were monitoring. So I think that as a US citizen, I was surprised by just how engaged uh, non-US actors were or transnational actors with some US connections were Mm -hmm. uh, in in monitoring the political economy Mm -hmm. of um, US military aid and Mm -hmm. the general process of militarization?
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the grassroots component for me was very interesting. I think when I started this project, we societally were trying to reckon with, where did this transnational far right, where did it come from? And I think the easy answer is the internet, right? It's kids going online and they get on the dark web and all of a sudden they've just become radicalized. And um, sure, that's how it happens sometimes. But I think that's an easy shortcut that avoids deeper reckoning with the role of white supremacy in American history and just how deeply personal that activism is, that you have, before the internet, people flying and hosting conferences and doing workshops and writing magazines and looking for wives, right? That this is something that was not just a foreign policy issue, but is everything that we are taught in our history courses of how foreign policy is deeply personal and that there is this personal dimension. I would say the second thing that I found just very interesting as a scholar was just how out of touch the Reagan administration was with other members of the Republican Party. You have people like Richard Lugar and Mitch McConnell literally begging Reagan to not veto sanctions because they think it is going to be so deeply embarrassing and so ridiculous essentially to be on the side of this white supremacist regime. And we can go into the variety of reasons that the Reagan administration chooses another path, but I think it was very interesting to look at the particular racial politics of the conservative movement in this period, and also putting the US in a more global perspective of we often think about just the US conservative movement, but the US is just one piece of this global conservative conversation about what is the role of race going to be in our parties coming out of the 1960s.
2: So one of the problems that strikes me with being a scholar, working on a dissertation, excuse me, is that you start to see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a common problem. You know, If, if you buy a Toyota, a Toyota Corolla, you will suddenly see there are a lot more Toyota Corollas on the road. So this is not unusual. <laughs> but it, it, there is, I think, a, a, a difficulty, especially in the fields that we work in, that it is hard to look at a newspaper or what passes for a newspaper on your phone at, without seeing your work. And I'm curious if, uh, I'll start here. Mm-hmm. If, looking at your work, what is one place where you see your work most clearly shining through in today's headlines, Mm -hmm. and is there, if there was a magic pill or a magic wand or a magic piece of advice that you could give to, Mm -hmm. let's say, the Secretary of State, based Mm -hmm. upon your work, what would you suggest?
4: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think the most obvious is what I started with, is January 6th. Um, And I think that exposed, for a lot of people, Um, myself included. I remember watching that with my my family. I was home for the holidays, as I'm sure many of us were, and um, that these are not not lone wolves. I think this is something that we've now started to accept more, uh, both in sort of a a cultural sense, but also in a policy sense, that these are not individual people who have been radicalized by the internet who have watched a series of videos. But this is an organized social movement, uh, and there are leaders, there are organizations, there are different kinds of goals. You have... Paramilitary actors. You have political organizations. You have religious. You have economic. That there are all these facets, um, and so I think if I was giving you know a piece of advice to you know the Secretary of State, to your example, is that you know to think about them only in the most militaristic and the most violent appraisal of this is only one piece of what this movement is pulling on. It is pulling on all of these different grievances that white supremacists have really started to be able to manipulate. And things like the internet are accelerators. They are not drivers, in my opinion.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I definitely can relate to the problem of beginning to see your research topic everywhere. I think that one facet of current events that um, ties in the arms trade that maybe would be counterintuitive for people, and even to an extent myself, is actually border walls and the policing of frontiers. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that we've seen since the end of the Cold War, and in particular over the past decade, is defense contractors being more and more involved in the construction of border walls and other security devices along frontiers. So for instance, um, uh, General Dynamics manufactures a lot of the high-tech, surveillance towers that are being constructed along the U.S.-Mexican border, which is an interesting uh, development. But I should also stress, this isn't just something that's happening between the United States and Mexico, or between, say, Mexico and Guatemala as it tries to revamp security along its own southern border. This is actually a general phenomenon throughout the globe. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2020, the Transnational Institute published a really interesting study which was able to, isolate 64 different border wall projects Mm -hmm. uh, across the globe that had been pursued since 19 uh, uh, over the past 50 years. And most of these projects uh, had been initiated in just the past two decades. Mm -hmm. So actually a lot of this uh, border wall construction is being pursued um, in Europe. A lot of it's happening in North Africa and also Mm -hmm. East Asia. Um, the Western Hemisphere actually has relatively little bar wall construction. The U.S. obviously gets a lot of mm-hmm. um, coverage uh, for political reasons, obviously. Um, but this is a facet um, of military-industrial relations, which I think is, is relatively invisible. But to a certain extent, walls are also becoming weapons. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question for each of you, and then we'll turn it over to the, to the audience. Uh, you are both success stories you have successfully made it through graduate school. Congratulations. Uh, We have a lot of students in the audience, and I'm I'm curious, uh, it would be trite to ask you what advice you would give them, though feel free, trite's always nice. Uh, But more importantly, what do you wish someone had told you before you started on this educational journey?
3: Mm. Mm. (laughs) Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I really think enjoy it because when you're sort of hunkered down in graduate school in your carol or you know your, your study mm-hmm. bunker, however you want to call mm-hmm. it, it's very easy to become fixated on the next deadline mm-hmm. and not to, to realize, oh, this is an immense privilege. Most mm-hmm. people do not get the opportunity to study and to do work on something that they truly love and mm-hmm. feel invested in. Mm-hmm. So I just feel enormous gratitude reflecting on uh, my graduate school mm-hmm. uh, career and now the opportunity to continue pursuing history work? Mm-hmm.
4: I think uh, the, the piece of advice that I had wished to get uh, was you can't just do it for the degree. You can't do it for the title. You have to do it because you love the work, as Jonathan said. You know, ne- Wanting to be Dr. Dilemo is not going to sustain you when you need to keep reading that 45th book that your advisor has told you to read. Um, and the other piece of advice that I got, that was from my father, that I was really grateful for, my, I don't come from a family of academics. My dad is former military, and I remember calling him and being like, I can't pick a dissertation topic. I, I don't know what to do. I'm interested in so many things. And he said to me, that's not the right way to look at it. You need to pick the thing that you're mad about. Pick the thing that is frustrating to you, that's vexing to you, that you want that answer. It can't just be, oh, I'm interested in those things, because people are curious. They're interested in a lot of things. Pick the thing." that in my case made me mad or the thing that vexes you or puzzles you that you are willing to spend as much time as we've spent trying to figure out what the answer to that is.
2: That's true, the thing that keeps you up at night yeah. is, is the thing that will get you up in the morning to go mm-hmm. back to the archive. Yeah. So we are going to turn things over to you. I'm gonna start out with a question that was handed to me uh, just to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. This is from uh, one of the students from Parish Episcopal, Victoria, is it B or by? B, mm-hmm. okay, Victoria B. Great question, so prepare yourself. Uh, To what extent does China's Belt and Road Initiative bolster BRICS' influence and enhance the likelihood of other nations supporting that alliance?
0: Mm.
3: That's a fantastic question. Um, I'd say that BRICS has certainly, BRICS in general has certainly become a, a more important player within the international system Uh, particularly since the end of the cold war during the 1990s we had um, commentators and intellectuals like charles krauthammer saying that this was a unipolar moment and predicting that the united states could essentially sustain hegemony or be the the one principal actor deciding this uh, making the key decisions for for the world Um, but i think that the brics countries have forced you as policymakers to think a little bit more strategically, a little more systematically, and a little mm-hmm. more humbly when it comes to uh, policymaking decisions. And so it also it allows for a little bit more um, ideological pluralism, which mm-hmm. I think is healthy. But one thing we've also seen is there are a lot of internal tensions mm-hmm. within the BRICS countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do not necessarily share the same interests or get along with mm-hmm. each other. Um, and I think that a lot of people were anticipating that the BRICS countries would also um, sort of be a way of promoting liberal or egalitarian mm-hmm. values from the Global South standpoint, mm-hmm. but with Narendra Modi in India, yeah. and with um, China's um, authoritarian system, I think we've seen that a lot of those dreams have sort of uh, crumbled.
4: Yeah. Um, Victoria, to your question, I was I was in South Africa this summer when um, BRICS had their conference, and it was a, a TBD if Putin was gonna be arrested if he showed up, and so I think that is, to Jonathan's point of, in some ways, BRICS is it's an unlikely coalition of partners, that there are some structural um, and ideological reasons why these states have become aligned, but there are deep tensions, especially this question of, of a rising China, of India, of how are they going to position themselves within the international system um, with big issues like Uh, Putin being branded a war criminal. How are they going to navigate that as a body? Um, South Africa has chosen uh, trying to walk this middle ground for a variety of reasons, but it just showcases that each of these groups is not only navigating how they see themselves in the future, but how they have positioned themselves in the past. Um, And that limits the way that they wish to be seen engaging in some of the the traditional Western international order system. So I think BRICS is only going to grow as important, especially as they're considering adding even more members. Um, So I don't think it's, uh, and especially with initiatives like the Belt and Road and um, what's going on with China's influence in Africa, this is not a question that's going away.
2: Mm -hmm. Wonderful question, Victoria. Uh, I have a question down in the third row
0: two questions, but I'll let you take your choice. Um, the consequences for us, the kind of payback of
4: our arms dealing with Mexico and selling arms, and then our competitors in the arms field, you know, France, you know, North Korea, Russia?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, one of the reasons that Mexico has been mired in a lot of political violence over the, the past two decades, is because the United States has such permissive arms laws, so it's extremely easy to traffic small and long arms over the border. Um, Things like AR-15s, for instance, which have become a favorite amongst a lot of drug cartel uh, members. Um, Initially, the Calderon administration, um, say, uh, 2008 on, was trying to essentially pursue a military solution to this issue. Um, So in in December 2008, uh, President Felipe Calderon of Mexico sent um, 30,000 military officials to 11 different states and tried to crack down on uh, the cartels. What this military path um, ultimately led to was the further um, militarization of the cartels themselves. So now there are actual cartels that manufacture their own tanks. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that has definitely backfired, uh, but the, the question of competition in, say, the Latin American market, if the United States doesn't sell arms, will other uh, suppliers step in? That's a very real question that uh, U.S. Um, policy makers have had to grapple with, really since the 1970s, when the Arms Export Control Act was passed. Mm-hmm. That led the, to uh, Congress and the Carter administration in particular curbing a lot of weapons flows to Latin America. What happened were, was a lot of alternative suppliers did indeed step in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the, the next question that that forces us to contemplate is, um, does sending arms uh, add to or help Solve these complicated political issues, and also what is the what is the um, result for U.S. legitimacy? Uh, there's a lot of uh, frustration in places like Mexico because of just uh, how easy it is to access U.S. arms and, and their role in destabilizing that uh, mm-hmm. that society.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is pertaining to um,
3: America's global influence like we've been talking about during this wonderful conversation, um, about how the US has major global influence, and it could either be positive or negative, but with organizations
1: such as G7 and BRICS, how do you think that America's global influence with arms and with um, racial influences, how does that
3: impact global decisions?
2: Great question. Mm
3: We go? No. You go. <laughs> well, it's uh, a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe you should you should write a dissertation. Yeah, about are you interested in graduate us.
4: school? Yeah. <laughs>
3: um,
4: yeah.
3: No, I I think it, it's a very complicated question because we see today that there are lots of intensely intricate complicated geopolitical issues, whether in Eastern Europe, like the Russo-Ukrainian War, Mm -hmm. or in the Middle East with uh, all sorts of different violent conflicts. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, what I would say is, I think one reason US policymakers often turn to policy tools in their repertoire, Mm -hmm. like military aid, is because it seems like a very quick and easy fix. Mm -hmm. After all, if you have overwhelming force, shouldn't you be able to solve the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, what you will see policymakers learn generation after generation with these policies do not pan out as anticipated mm-hmm. is that really complex political problems require a complex political solution. Mm-hmm. And there's really no alternative for that.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, to your question, I'll take it as, you know, what is the U.S.? What does it represent? And I think. One of the things that was most disturbing as I started my research was just how literally white supremacists uh, in other places took inspiration from what happened in the United States. So literally today, I was going through a new material I got in South Africa, and it was a letter from uh, a South African white supremacist writing to an American and saying, that he finally understood the Civil War and how it must have felt when those Northerners came down and wrecked the Southern way of life. Like it was literally that explicit. I mean, it was nice to not have to draw anything but a straight line today. I could just move that very cleanly over into my writing document. But that there is a very literal inspiration that white supremacist groups take not only from the history of the United States, but the contemporary activity of these groups, if you talk about the symbols, the uh, you know seeing things like the Confederate flag in other places, um, seeing the appropriation of Nazi imagery in the United States, that it is a very fluid system. On the converse side, um, things like the Movement for Black Lives or the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s also took on international significance, that the United States can be this force of, um, representing and advocating for equality that comes from the social history of the United States. But those things are often bound together of white supremacists in my story reacting to the successes of, of black people, women, the LGBTQ LBGT, community, all of that is what they're responding to. So they're inextricably tied together as your question um, really gets at of that progress and regression are, are often linked, especially with the US as a place where both of those things are, are happening.
3: Do
2: we have time for one more? Uh, I'm gonna let you pick so I don't have to pick between them, because they'll hit me. Nice. Augusta, uh, you talk a lot
4: about this idea of white supremacy, so just to better understand my end, what is the definition that you provide under your mm. Um, So in my, did my advisor send you? Because he asked me this question <laughs> too, no. Um, so when I'm talking about white supremacy in my story, I am explicitly talking about um, a range of actors. And so I think that there is a problem when we take too broad or too narrow of a definition. So when you're talking about white supremacy, I think it is more than just people who are literally advocating for segregation, a white nationalist ethnic state, that it includes a range of people who were explicitly advocating for that the white supremacist regime in South Africa to, could take place and should continue to exist. Now. Many of the actors in my story explicitly define themselves as white supremacists. They would say, I am a white supremacist. I believe that white people are the superior race, and that is how I am defining myself. However, there are also people that couched what I view as their white supremacist position of saying, I'm really just focused on geopolitical hierarchy. I'm really just concerned about anti-communism. But in practice, what they're advocating for is a continued lack of rights for black people and the continued power of the white supremacist regime. So I think you have to do two things simultaneously, I find in my work, which is taking people at their word for how they define themselves, but then critically evaluating their positions in terms of outcomes. What is the outcome of their policy? So that is how that is how I take it. But, It is also, uh, it's also evolving. White supremacy is not static, it is an evolving force. Um, And so what white supremacy looks like in my story is not exactly what we see now.
2: Thank you. You know, can I, while you're coming up, um, I'm gonna make a political comment on, uh, playing off that for a second. That we're all historians, so we're all concerned about what people in the past did. And yet we're also citizens. Everyone here in the room is concerned about where the world is going today and where our country is going today. And of course there's a natural linkage between how we understand the past and influences how we understand the present and the future. One thing that I am really amazed by in our current political moment is the enthusiasm for people who don't don't like the past as it plays out today to, try to rewrite the past to say, no, that anxiety didn't occur, or no, this tension didn't occur, or no, there was no anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti-Jew, whatever you want to have. Those are those all underplayed. That does such a disservice to the people of the past, because most of the people of the past were actually very convinced that they were right about everything. Mm. Uh, you know, so when we see people who are advocating for the Confederacy and the Civil War, mm-hmm. they were very proud of the reasons mm-hmm. that they were doing things. And we see people who are advocating for you know, uh, keeping segregation going in the 1950s and 60s. If you don't list, use their words, if they're your ancestors and you don't use their words, you're actually disrespecting your own ancestors. And so I think what we need to do is try, as we all do, to remember that you can't change the past, so don't try. In fact, give the past a little bit more respect of paying attention to what people are actually saying. Mm-hmm. When people said they're white supremacists, they were. Mm-hmm. And when people said, I think that we can you know, make more money selling arms overseas than we can refrigerators, they weren't lying.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So, mm-hmm. that's it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that great discussion. I was just about to say, history is rewritten all the time mm-hmm. it happens every day mm-hmm. but it's so important to know this historical context so it teaches us how it's impacting us today so we have to keep on mm-hmm. discussing these types of topics and uh, we appreciate Ed Kotman and Catherine Kotman for allowing this uh, this opportunity for us to talk about this so thank you very much and Ed thank you Catherine. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. We really appreciate you being here. We appreciate the great questions. And we look forward to next year to celebrate Gail Cotman. And we have a very small token of our uh, appreciation tonight. We'll see you next time. Thanks again.